Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited to introduce you to our next interview interviewee, I guess I would say, our my friend, an author, a uh, fellow Adlerian. His name is Kelvin Armiding, and he is the Senior Associate at Traveler's Rest Counseling Association in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. There he counsels young adults, couples, and parents, and he regularly lectures on Adlerian psychology at regional universities and facilities, training workshops both locally and internationally. Uh, he has also just recently recently released a book. The book title is called The Cooperative Family, How Ridding Ourselves of Competitive Goals Helps Us to Flourish. And I was honored enough to be asked to read the pre-release and I was blown away. So Calvin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for writing the book. Yeah, it was uh, a a fun thing. I actually just this week, I, I loaned uh, a couple copies to some clients of mine and it reminded me that, yeah, this is why I wrote the book, is that uh, I needed this book and it didn't exist, so I made it myself. And that's a great reason to write a book, I feel like. And so I've as as much helped myself as anybody, perhaps more than anybody else, I've helped myself. And, uh, and I have, and I too, as a as a clinician, have already been recommending your book. Uh, oh, thank you. Um, and and so here's why I enjoy it. You know, Adlerian psychology we could criticize for being um, difficult language and terminology that's not always easily accessible. And I think as clinicians, sometimes we have to like make it more user friendly when we're trying to get the concepts <laughs> across. And in your book, you did such a great job of taking these complex ideas and unpacking them in easily digestible ways and, and, and not making it 
so theoretical that it's like boring to read. It's actually like engaging to read because you use case conceptualizations. Like you're actually like on a journey of a family discovering all of this, or you're on a journey of a husband and wife discovering. So you're, you've kind of got that like eavesdroppy. It just, it makes it so real, real world, I guess is, um, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I, I did put these extensive, uh, like big meaty case studies in most of the chapters, uh, in, in, I think at least more than one chapter, there's multiple case studies. Some are quite small, but there's at least one big case study in, in the kind of body of the, of the book. And the reason I did that is that people don't live on paper. Like they don't live in theory. They don't live in concepts. They live in the middle of a story. And so concepts come to life when we put them in story. And when we can really show somebody how it's flushing itself out, not just hammering away at concept after concept after concept. Um, I don't know why it is that Adlerian psychology in particular seems to translate so horrifically from the German. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but we do it. Like we, we have these things like, like social interest, for instance, right? That's a concept that uh, is big in Adlerian psychology. I don't know why uh, we've chosen to call it that when community feeling, I actually asked some Germans, I was like, what does, how would you translate Gemeinschaftsgefühl? And they said, yeah. oh, commu- so we're already starting just so, you know, I mean, we're already starting with Gemeinschaftsgefühl. Like there's, yeah. a, if you're not German, that's already, you got to get your tongue around it. And then to your point, <laughs> right. then to your point, then we translate it and we get some inaccurate you know, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? So you, so social yeah. interest is one inter is one English way that it's been interpreted, but you say you like community feeling, which is also probably just as valid, just with a different translator. Yeah. And, and even then, right. Then you have to kind of weed through the, okay, so it's, uh, so it's community feeling. And then you have to somehow help people understand what that really looks like, right? It's because, I mean, what does a feeling look like, you know, or how does it manifest itself in story? So, you know, as as we're talking about a complicated idea like Gemeinschaftsgefühl, or we're talking about something fairly simple like mutual respect, right? You know, I get parents or families in here or couples, and we talk about mutual respect, and they say, oh, yeah, we have mutual respect. And I'm thinking to myself, no, uh, no, you don't. <laughs> and I, and I don't mean that judgmentally. I just mean, you know, they have an idea of what mutual respect is, but it's kind of dis, it's quite theoretical. And so then when we look at them, their lives kind of nested in story and experiences and those things, then things really come alive. And so that's why I put those case studies in there um, so that uh, we, we wouldn't stay too conceptual so that wouldn't be helpful to people. Yeah. And, and to your point, I think that it's very easy for someone to say, um, you know, yeah, I have community feeling. I care about, I care about my community, (laughs) but, and it's like, yeah, or, you know, I have mutual respect. That sounds like a good thing. I do that occasionally, but these tenants run deeper and richer and we, and we uh, breach or break them frequently, uh, unwittingly, unknowingly, you know, it's really about, it's really about having kind of a worldview and a, and a perspective. It's a lens in which we see things. It's a, it's a, it's a frame in which we operate within. And one of the big ones in the book, and it's actually right in your subtitle is about, um, 
cooperation versus competition. So, so maybe as we let, let's unpack some of these so that we can actually get people to feel what you know. Because, like, I, I would say, and I'm going to apologize both to my audience, to you, and to my sound editor. Apparently, it's this time of recording is a good time for lawn work in my neighborhood. And we've been waiting so long for good weather that if you're hearing lawnmowers in the background, let's just see it as like sweet violins that life is returning to normal and the weather is good in Toronto. But I apologize. I apologize for the buzzing if it, if it comes into this recording. The book is about this general idea that as human beings, we are going to flourish, self-actualize, be greatly enriched if we can learn to cooperate and get along with one another, which was a big Adlerian concept. And and it sounds so easy. Like, of course I want to cooperate. Of course I'm not competitive. You know, I don't care if I lose a game of Monopoly, but it's so much more nuanced <laughs> than, than that. Um, and so I'm going to, I'm going to toss it over to you to, to kick that off. But, but um, before I do, I also just want people to understand in the structure of the book, you've done a beautiful thing in you've, you've parsed this out to include relationships that are both parent and child within the marriage, within intergenerations, so that so that people can really understand how this this experience is in all human interactions. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the idea, right? Is not that um, yeah, it's certainly not just between parents and children. I I think Adlerians by and large have, I mean, we've had so much influence on parenting but then uh, I look at things like like marriage uh or or life partnerships we've maybe struggled a little bit to have quite so much influence there and then also you know Adler had this it was a very it was a social philosophy that he had you know it wasn't just a vision for individuals making little individual choices but it was a vision for society and for whole communities and um I don't think we've always bridged that gap very well. And so that's uh, that certainly is part of what I was trying to do. But okay, to your point about uh, Lydia Sitcher, a student of Adler's who she moved to Southern California, set up an Adlerian society in Los Angeles, was there for a long time. Really, really brilliant woman. I feel a little bit sad that I couldn't have ever met her. She's uh, sounded like a pretty spectacular person, but she made this really helpful distinction about the way in which we strive for superiority. So just to very quickly for listeners, there's that uh, Adler observes that everybody possesses feelings of inferiority and that our response to those feelings of inferiority is to strive for superiority. Yeah. About- and so I'm just going to interrupt there. So, so, um, so I, one of the like common examples as this being part of the human condition is that babies want to learn to go from, not moving and being mobile to getting up on two feet, or they all want to learn their mother tongue, that it's, that it's, uh, yeah. that's part of the, it's part of the natural growth, growth process. Yeah. We're always just, we're always perhaps becoming aware of something, a, a way in which we do not measure up. Perhaps, you know, we say, Oh, I, I can't meet that challenge. And that, Either we get discouraged about it and give up, and that's actually a way to strive for superiority because then you conscript other people into your service to do it for you or to excuse you from the responsibility of doing it, um, or you just keep moving. But the and there's this idea of the law of movement, yeah, that we're always moving. We're always on the move, moving away from a felt minus towards a felt plus, moving away from feelings of inferiority towards feelings of superiority. Now, the word superiority 
it has a kind of yucky connotation to it. And I think fair, you know, in, in, in some ways quite fairly, when we think about, let's take somebody like Adolf Hitler with dreams of his superior Aryan race or white supremacists or, you know, things of this sort, you know, that, oh, I'm superior, or perhaps you've had a really awful boss who is your quote unquote superior, right? Something like that. But uh, Lydia Sitcher, back to her, she makes this beautiful distinction between two different ways of striving for superiority. And one she would call striving on the vertical plane. And this is like playing king of the mountain, uh, where like when I was a kid, we'd find a big gravel pile and, and we'd play king of the mountain and somebody would get on top. And if you're on top, your job is to keep everybody else down. And if you're not on top, your job is to pull the person on top down so that you can get on top. And that's what uh, vertical striving looks like it's competitive. It's fundamentally competitive. We could sum it up in the word competition that that's your way of approaching life. I have to pull others down so that I might be able to move up. But Sitcher also observes that there's another way to go about striving, and that's uh, what she called horizontal striving. That's striving with and for others rather than uh, striving for superiority over others. Uh, so something like this would be like uh, rising tides raise all boats. Right, that if I do well, this person next to me does well, and if they do well, I do well in turn. So this inextric that this awareness that we are inextricably tied uh, to the well-being of other people around us, and that really, in so many ways, like that is Gemeinschaftsgefühl. That is community feeling. It is a cooperative way of doing life, of looking around and saying, "How can I lend a hand?" Uh, what is it that I can do to contribute to the well-being, not just of myself at the expense of others, but yes, to my well-being, but along with others, like as a team, as a group, as a community. And Art, it's so interesting that, you know, this is so topical right now as we are trying to get yes. the world all vaccinated, as we are trying to like conquer global warming, th that actually what you spit out of your factory on your country does land in my ozone over here in this country. <laughs> and I need, you know, herd immunity. So when you say it's my, you know, God-given right to not wear a mask and not get vaccinated, we're not thinking of the of the whole, Right. And so this yes. is so topical right now, but it, but it's but it's not just a, a global phenomenon. It goes down to like a, the size of a classroom or the size of a family, you know. Yes, yeah, and and in so many ways, right? What a family is kind of the I mean, really the premise of this book, it's that families are a training ground, and family is where our our style of life. That's an Adlerian idea um, that we develop a particular way of managing challenges and seeing the world and navigating our way through it. The training ground for all of that is the family environment. So our siblings, you know, and so uh, how we relate to siblings, that's kind of like, how are we going to relate to peers or to friends with parents? They're kind of like proto authority figures, you know, they're like, they have a kind of governance to them, you know, and, and they have, uh, you know, when you show up to school on your first day of kindergarten, perhaps your teacher, they're kind of a, a a form or a, a manifestation of a father or mother, right? Yeah, and so the leaders, leader, sorry, yeah. leader, leadership, right? And so you've, uh, you know, if you've, depending on how you've learned to interact with mom or dad, uh, that's going to affect then how you interact with teacher. And I'm not saying it's always going to be exactly the same, but you're functionally training for life within the context of the family, and therefore it matters a lot whether we learn to compete or to cooperate in our families, because it's not just, oh yeah, make, make it so that your family gets along, 
No, I mean, I mean, that is important. I want that to happen. But what's most important, really, at the end of the day, is that when you leave your family, that you take those uh, skills out into the world and you make them manifest out in the community at large. And so if all you've learned to do is to compete, you know, to play king of the mountain, and you learn that you have to push others down if you want to do okay in life, well, guess what you're going to do when you leave the family? You're going to push other people down. But if on the other side, your, your approach to life is one of how can I contribute? How can I lend a hand? I've got a place. I have a place of belonging. I have something to offer. No, I can't always do what I want. Sometimes I have to do things that I don't want, but I'm, I'm seeking out the well-being of a community in which I can flourish if the community flourishes. That's the kind of thing that we want to stir up in people, not just from a family level, but on a societal level, on a community level, on a global level. That's what we want to stir up. And, and here's, you know, the brain pretzel that we're really putting out there to people, you know, that are just trying to get um, familiar with Adlerian psychology. Because we've had a lot of training in North American culture in particular, around, that's more competitive and individualistic, there are sort of these quiet rules, implicit kind of rules that we don't stop and challenge that are sort of like, well, no, there's sort of this scarcity mentality. If you don't fight for king of the mountain, you're not going to get the high grades and you're not going to get into the good colleges and you're not going to get placed in the good law firm. And you've got to look out for yourself. And that if you're you know, going to buy into Calvin's idea of all these boats rising together, that, you know, you're never going <laughs> to make it anywhere. And, you know, you know you, and, and it, it couldn't be farther from the truth, you know, that, um, that we really are asking people to take a minute to step back, take a deep breath and think about the way the world works and realize the people that go on to however you want to measure that for that form of success um, never got there alone. That everything we everything we do is is cooperative um, or 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 how many people manage to like hit their individualistic goal and then have complete collapse because in truth, psychologically, we're not wired to be alone and at the top of the heap. That poor guy that finally made it to the t to the top of the mountain couldn't be more miserable. It's just him and his mountain. No, no people. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it's a terrible place to be on top of the mountain. I mean, a you're alone and, and I want to speak more a little bit to the social nature of our species, but then also, right. You're just, you're so anxious because everybody else wants to tear you down. You know, I mean, that's, those, those are the only two ways of being on the vertical plane. What Lydia Sitcher calls the vertical plane is you're, you're either, you know, kind of peeved because you're not on top and you're desperately trying to pull somebody else down or you're on top and you're desperately trying to fend people off. And those are your only options. And it's and just, you, it's yeah. terrible. And, exa and, exa and exhausting, right? Yes. I mean, you think about how much energy and potential that we have in one lifespan, you know, again, moving off the individual and more into like the cultural contribution of humanity. You know, we only get to go around this life once. And if we spend all our time, you know, with our, our dukes up and trying to push our neighbors away as enemies to, to, to protect and defend and things are scarce and under attack, like, oh, we've gotten, we, we, we waste all our potential. Whereas, you know, yeah. if, if we let go of that concept, Look, look at the resources that are free to be applied somewhere else. 
Yeah, a- absolutely. And I'm fascinated. This is a thing that I inherited from one of my former professors, Paul Rasmussen, who I know you have on, you've had on the show. Yeah. Uh, R- Rasmussen really drilled into us uh, when I was studying with him at Furman University, drilled into us this understanding of evolutionary adaptation. So I've carried that with me. And now I just, every time I can get a, my hands on a book on evolutionary psychology or evolutionary anthropology, I'm all, I'm just on top of it. So two books that I've read in the past year, one is uh, Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, and then also The Social Leap uh, by William Von Hippel. Both of these books do this incredible thing where they're, so they're both these, you know, anthropologists or, uh, uh, Von Hippel is a evolutionary psychologist, University of Queensland in Australia. And what they're doing is they're observing one of the things that is really fundamental about our species is that we cooperate. I mean, in, in Yuval Noah Harari's book, he's pointing out the reality is, is there were a ton of humanoid species exist, existing on our planet. And the only reason that Homo sapiens won out is because we were able to cooperate in groups that were much, much larger than, say, Neanderthals or something like that, uh, who really could only cooperate in, I don't know, groups of 100 to 150. I might be quoting that figure wrong, but it's somewhere around there. Whereas Homo sapiens, we had this ability to invent fictions, which that's actually fascinating that he says the, he uses the word fiction. That's very Adlerian. But we were able to invent fictions, and those fictions allowed us to cooperate in groups of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and eventually, you know, millions. And and now, I mean, the hope would be, right, is that we could have a fiction, meaning an idea, kind of a, a concept of value that we could rally around uh, as people and, and cooperate toward that goal. The hope would be that we could do that in the billions now, you know, and and I, I think we have some goals out there, uh, which really circles back around to what Adler always said, that the meaning of life, like, like the a good meaning to have for life is life means contribute. Life means lend a hand. Life means pitch in a little bit of effort and resource for the well-being of the community so that it flourishes. And you know what? When your community does pretty well, you end up doing okay. You know, nobody likes to live in a trash heap. That's <laughs> you know, yeah. no good. Yeah. And you yeah. and you and you feel that psychologically that I care for others, but it means that when it's my turn to be cared for because I'm in need, it will it will come back. Not that our it's not a, a selfish it's it's not a, a a tit for tat. You know you 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 did this for me. Now you owe this back. That's competitive. That's competitive. Yes. Cooperative is you know you 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 give because it needs to be done because it's the right thing to do. And you may or may not need to be reciprocated for what you did. It's not bean counting. It's it's not it's not about that form of equality. So I mean. To your point about we we start we start the early training for children to start thinking or or create their mindset in a, in a cooperative way from the earliest of ages and it really then I think comes down to what is the tone of the marriage that if the if the mom and mom dad and dad whatever organization that you have the leadership governance of your family sets the tone. Um, for, for what your family is. So, so maybe we start with talking a little bit about what does a competitive marriage look like when you have people come into your, your practice and they're coming for some marriage counseling, you know, how do you pick up on the fact that these two are, um, low in social interest, high in competition, (laughs) striving for superiority rather than for mastery or 
Well, I mean, the the very quick and cheap answer is, that I, I mean, I know that they're in competition because they're walking into my office. <laughs> so it's a good starting point. They made an appointment. <laughs> That's right. I mean, uh, th- things clearly are not going well for them. And yeah. the reality with comp- with cooperation, and I don't, I don't want to like overstate the case with cooperation. It doesn't create Shangri-La where like everything is just great all the time, but it is the kind of thing where even when things get pretty bad, if you're cooperating, you tend to feel pretty connected to the other person and, uh, and you don't have to put them down and they're not putting you down. And there's really not a whole lot of need for defensiveness or for, let's say, you know, preemptive strikes against one another. I mean, you just, you just don't have to do that if you're in cooperate. So, I mean, so I know that they're in competition because they come in, but then perhaps uh, a little bit more detailed of an answer. So I, I do. I spend time doing lifestyle investigation actually with with uh, you know with couples who come in, and pretty quickly we can sort out what is their perspective on life. I mean, what did what's scary in life? What's the felt minus by and large that they're trying to move away from the yucky feelings that they don't want to have, and then you know uh, what's the what do they imagine life is going to be if it's going to be great, you know? So it's something like this, you know, you you get somebody in and perhaps they've had a really, I mean, they've had a rough story, you know, there's maybe some trauma that hangs out back there. And so the, and, you know, as Adler said, you know, it's not just that people suffer from trauma, but it's, what's really important is the meaning that they give to what they experience. And so if the meaning that they give is, well, the competition that I'm engaged in with a partner is who's safest. So, the thing is, right, is uh, when when your goal in life is to be the safest, well, you get incredibly defensive. You avoid conversations that need having that are a little bit scary and maybe maybe a little bit unsafe. And the other thing is, is you can get pretty damn controlling of the other person because if you don't have control over them, then maybe they're a threat. And, you know, what if, oh gosh, well, what if they cheat on me? Well, remember life means to be the safest. And so I'm going to be the safest by, you know, I'm going to call them every 15 minutes to see where they are. And I'm not really going to believe them when they say it, I'm going to double check and triple check and quadruple check. And okay. So, you know, so that's a competition that people get in. Other people get in competitions about, you know, well, who's the smartest. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of the thing of, you know, uh, who's right. You know, I mean, that, that's a lot of arguments or, you know, sometimes it manifests like this, whose needs are more valid. I'd say that's probably the most common competition that walks in my office between couples is whose needs are most valid. Well, I have a need for spontaneity. Well, I have a need to plan. Well, I guess we'll just go back and forth for the next 25 years about, you know, <laughs> whose need is more valid and the whole thing, you know, there's this opportunity for cooperation that never gets, you know, never gets attended to. Oh my gosh. You know, and I'm thinking how many people are listening to this during the pandemic, which has been (laughs) very hard on marriages Yeah, because, you know, we've got people that are trying to work from home, trying to manage the kids. Uh, And to your point, different people have different coping styles, have different needs being met. And people are feeling like you're not, you're not understanding my pain. Why is your job coming above my job? Uh, you know, why are you getting this respite and I'm not, you, you know, uh, you really, I, I'm really seeing more of this being under the microscope of the pandemic. I think it put pressure on couples who, you know, maybe were faking it or, <laughs> or, yeah. or skimming by 
And, uh, and, and now it's like, no, people are feeling pretty taxed. Their backs are up against the wall. Their lifestyle is, is, um, showing more and this stuff is starting to get revealed to them. Yeah. For the good and the bad. I mean, you you know, we're in the business of helping them see it and, and, and have, um, epiphanies and then move towards the more cooperative, you know, point point of view, you know, so I hope it's helpful. I hope that, you know, kind of hitting that inflection point where you say it can't keep going like this. And then, and then we get to, you know, be therapeutic. That's what we like about our jobs is bringing families back together, bringing couples back together. Yeah. No, no question. No question. So, so now we finally get a couple who they're, they're, they're not, um, they're in a more cooperative kind of a vein and things are going along and they want to be cooperative and they like this idea of cooperation. They like this idea of mutual respect. And then they have the kid who won't do their online schooling. (laughs) Well, there is just this, uh, great misconception, right? That parents can, can make children do things. And, um, and the reality is, is that they can't. And that's not because they're powerless. They have precisely as much power as anybody else, which is you have power to make your own choices. And that's it. Yeah. And now, enjoy that power. But that is the that is the sum total of it. Yes. Yeah, right. And and that uh that often sounds, let's say, pretty uh, sometimes even quite radical. I think, you know, I mean, my area of the United States, it's you know extremely conservative, large swaths of evangelicals here um, who are just have really hammered away on parental authority. And I do do want to make clear that I don't have any wild disdain for an idea that a parent has parental authority, but how that manifests is pretty important. And so one of the things that happens, right, is parents say, well, they're a child and I'm the parent and therefore I can make them do things. And that's just simply mistaken. Now, you can win a child's cooperation. And that's pretty awesome. Like, it's it's pretty cool. But um, what you can't do is make them do things. And the best that you're going to get is that you will bribe them or frighten them into doing what you want. But there is a big price to pay for that. You know, if you bribe them, a child, yeah, okay. Oh well, I'll do my online schooling if you buy me ice cream, right? And and then mom, perhaps out of desperation, and I mean, I've I've been here myself as a parent. I like I've been there where you're just like, yes, I will do anything, you know, anything for you whatsoever. Uh, then what's happened, right, is that you've maintained a competitive dynamic, and kids just figured out, yeah, well, like here's how it works, you know, I'll give them a little bit and then I'll get what I want, you know, and, and that's really the end of the story. And the parents thinking the other way, yeah, I'll give them a little bit, but then I'll get what I want. And that goes back and forth. And unfortunately, what that does is it trains kids to say, you know, well, I'll only do what's right if the price is right, you know, if if you're going to pay me well enough for it. Um, and that's, I mean, that's not the kind of thing that we want to put out into the world. Uh, that's and certainly- plus, don't you have to be the king of the mountain to dole out the ice cream? It reestablishes the the mountain mindset. That's right. Yeah, I am. I'm the holder of all good things. You know, I'm yeah. I'm the I'm the controller of this house. You know, the accounting controller of this house. Yeah, of I, ice I cream, money, all everything. <laughs> yeah, toys, whatever. Yeah. And then the other, you know, the other way to do it is just to frighten them into doing it. And the trouble with that is that then your kid's frightened of you, and um. And uh, let's say then when they get into a little bit of trouble, that's a good bit more secretive and less apparent to a parent. Um, Kids not going to go talk to the parent. They're not doing that. 
And so I get, you know, in my office all the time, these parents who, you know, they have adolescents or whatever, who it's like, oh my gosh, I just found out that they've been smoking a vape, you know, 85 times a day for, you know, the past year. How did I not know? And I'm like, I, I you know, and again, not judgmentally, but I'm saying, well, cause you, you scared the crap out of your kid for the first 10 years of their life. And so they're not going to come tell you they're just not. And I'm not saying that that's the right thing to do, but I'm saying it is the understandable and fairly predictable thing for them to do. So this, there's this other way. Don't have to bribe. Don't have to frighten. You can win the cooperation of your child by treating them with mutual respect, which is to say, this is from Frank Walton, our mutual friend, Frank Walton. He said that mutual respect is this. I can't make you and you can't make me. And that's, it's so freeing. It's so nice. And it, and it, and it also makes all the energy that you put into parenting very efficient because the only things that you're trying to control, you actually can control instead of trying to control something that you can't and which just is exhausting, discouraging, and there are huge relational prices to pay for that. Oh, and, you know, I think that this is one of the root causes of parents getting angry because when you try and you can't and you feel powerless, that powerless is that felt minus. And how do you get to your perceived felt plus, which is them being controlling or all these other maladaptive things. And it's still not, it's not effective. It's not getting you. It's not actually getting you the full result that you want to your point comes, comes at a cost might be cathartic for a minute, but (laughs) it might be cathartic to yell, but it, in the long run, it's, it's not where we're trying to go. We really want to have a kid who's interested in, in education. We want to have a kid who's excited about learning. We want to have a kid who's engaged in their own growth. And, um, you know, we don't want, you know, peons and puppets, who like that's not I don't I don't know a parent who you know I know they say oh, I wish they'd listen to him but like I don't know a parent alive who said I wish I had a child that was a puppet robot that you would I mean I don't think we yeah. would have gone into parenting if that was our goal right no we, you know we want we want these kids to to self actualize and be all they can be well and uh, just to quickly mention you know my parents who by the way I mean they really all things being told did an incredible job. They were great parents. We knew that, like my brother and I knew that they really loved us. But, you know, they'd drop us off and they'd say, uh, do what you're told. Uh, when they And look, I mean, they were trying to school us up right. You know, that it, it wasn't insidious. But uh, one of the adjustments that I've made uh, with my kids is that I do not tell them to do what they're told. It, in part, in part, because perhaps just by virtue of my work, I know a little bit too much about uh, you know, sexual abuse and grooming and I mean, things like that, that happen that really where that starts is an adult finds a kid who's willing to do what they're told and they exploit that. And of course, that's not a parent's fault. Like if that had happened to me, that wouldn't have been my parent's fault for saying, do what you're told. But it's a very real pitfall that you and I know in this, in, in this line of work that maybe the average parent does not know because they don't that's right. That. Yeah, that's right. So what I tell them instead, uh, if I drop them off somewhere, I give them a big hug and I say, be kind, have fun and cooperate. And the idea of cooperating is it's close enough to do what you're told, right? I, I'm saying, hey, look, like, don't be a jerk. <laughs> you know, like, don't, don't just dig in your heels at every last little thing that somebody does, but like, cooperate with somebody, but that leaves some room for them to make their own choices, for them to say no to things that they should say no to. 
Um, but they can do that in a way that's not just competitive. No, because, you know, I'm the one in charge here and I don't have to do what you, t it's not that it's, Hey, figure out how to work with people. And if they're asking you to do something that you know is wrong, don't, you know, you can be kind. You don't have to be unkind, but uh, you can say, no, you don't have to do what you're, what you're told all the time. And it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool, you know? And I, I, I do want to just quickly mention too, that I think sometimes parents who are very, let's say hooked on a reward and punishment approach to parenting, which is understandable. It's our history. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not an utterly crazy idea. It's mistaken, but it's not utterly crazy. Uh, sometimes they hear me talk about parenting and I think they're just like, it's going to be this like anarchist wasteland. There's going to be <laughs> crayon all over the walls. There's, you know, uh, it's going to be just, you know, Snickers bars for dinner, you know, and, and I just want to make clear it's, it's really not what it's like. I mean, I do not, my wife and I, we do not use reward and punish. I mean, we slip up or whatever, but by and large, we've not adopted that model. And my kids are, you know, I mean, they're kids, they misbehave, but like by and large, they're beautifully behaved children and they listen to us and they look to us for guidance and, uh, and we have limits and it's not snicker bars for dinner. Like I, I really can assure listeners, it does not turn into an anarchist, you know, wasteland. It, it does not. It, it's, it's so, so true. In fact, I would say one of my biggest, you know, as I love this philosophy for life, the Adlerian philosophy for life. I, it bothers me when people confuse our approach with being overly child-centered or, be, or being doormat yeah. or whatever it is. And in fact, when people kind of get on board and start saying like, well, how do you get them to not eat Snickers? Well, how do you, which is, you know, not, not for our conversation today, but part of all the <laughs> other podcasts and parenting classes. But, um, yeah. you know, when, when, when they do learn the techniques or whatever, I find actually what they say is that I find it's the other way where they're like, you're in their words, like that's really, you're going to let them experience. You're going to let them go to school without eating breakfast. You're going to, they actually think we're, when they get inside it, they actually think we're harsh, but all we're really doing is having faith in the child and that we're socializing that to your point, that the role of parenting is to socialize our children, to be kids, humans that are living by the, governing rules of being a social creature, the give and take of social living, the ironclad logic of social giving. And yes. you're not doing anyone a favor when you think you always get to be the line leader. You're not no. doing a kid a favor when you don't teach him to get along with this fellow man, because he he's that that's the formula for success as a human being. And so we're just evading our responsibility if we don't spend the time training that in, in childhood. Yeah. Or that, you know, or that whining will get you McDonald's chicken nuggets instead of broccoli, you know, like, yes. I mean, what, what a horrible thing to pass to a child. I mean, and, you, and the irony or uh, the tragedy of it is that of course, parents aren't like, they're just like, yeah, but they're going to starve if they don't eat chicken nuggets, you know, like if, if they don't There's eat the their broccoli yeah, the and I don't button. give them anything. Else, yeah. Right. They're going to starve. And the, the great thing about children is with very, very few exceptions, if they do not eat their dinner or their breakfast or whatever, they will get to that next meal and they will eat their least favorite thing imaginable. 
because <laughs> they're so hungry, you know? That's what I, I, I joke to parents. I say, you know, we don't, if you think about, you know, homo sapiens from the evolutionary biology perspective, uh, and then you compare us to other animals, you know, we don't have like anorexic chipmunks, you know, they see a nut and they eat it. <laughs> what's, yeah. what's going on with humans that we get all into this stuff? Oh. Yeah. Um, so, so if we're, we're, what about, because I do have this in my practice where I have parents who have taken the parenting class, they've done a really great job of work, doing the work, you know, they've, they've done some of their own unpacking of early childhood recollections. And you know, they, you know, I would say they've really embraced this way of life. And then they get children who seems to be, no matter what they do, all the family meetings, all the, you know, not comparing and these siblings can still be just pitted against each other. Like <laughs> just want to take each other down. Do you, do you have that in your practice or am I, do I just need to keep no, going to never, more training? <laughs> never. No, <laughs> That's never happened in your whole experience as an Adlerian. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and I mean, Adler perhaps more than anybody is exceptionally helpful here. You know, you, you get a misbehaving kid and perhaps let's say culture wide, you know, if you're reading like a parenting, well, maybe not in Canada, if you're reading a parenting column in your local newspaper, because you're publishing those <laughs> columns, but doing my best, but I'm not the only voice. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, a lot of it is looking at parenting and of course that's proper. I'm not saying that that's a, a bad perspective, but often we do not pay attention to sibling competition competition between siblings. And it is just such a huge, uh, it, it makes such a big impact. Uh, I mean, I've had Adlerians tell me that one of the best questions you could ask a client, maybe even on their, their first session is to ask them, who was the sibling that was most different from you and how? And that you can learn an immense amount of really meaningful information just from that one question. Um, and that's because, you know, siblings, they really are they're kind of our proto peers, you know, and, and in some senses, they're maybe the people with whom we are more likely to compete because we're relative equals, you know, we're fairly evenly matched. And so, uh, yeah, they can, you know, the parents can just be crushing it, but if there's this unaddressed sibling, uh, conflict competition between siblings, you know, parents can just do everything, you know, just spot on and the sibling competition will keep things moving. So one of the things that parents have to do, right, is to learn to, I mean, to play their part, not to manage their children's relationships for them. I, I want to make that really clear that that's not a good plan, but to do what they can to just put a little bit of guidance or a little bit of something in there every once in a while to reorient competitive siblings towards eight, maybe maybe it's not about who who gets to the car first you know and maybe it's not okay you know john over here he's yeah he's crushing it at school school's pretty easy for him it's harder for you that's okay you know like like you know life isn't about straight a's they're great to get but that's not what it's about and um and let me remind you you know you've got this going on for you and uh and sending siblings back to each other seems like you aren't getting along what are your ideas for what you could do about? It? Well, I don't know, you know, or or John needs to come apologize. Well, maybe he will, you know, and and you just you stay out, you know, yeah. so you don't oh my play gosh. judge, jury, executioner, any of that stuff, because that that can only you know 
spin it forward, you know, intensify it. Cause, Oh, John's the guy who uh, not only is he getting the straight A's, but you know what mom and he's also got mom and dad on his side. And that if I'm John's brother, well, now I've got to intensify my competitive strategies and maybe I got to get meaner and maybe I got to, you know, compensate 10 other ways to get back at him. And, and maybe I lie in wait for my revenge. I mean, all, you know, all kinds of options here. I have to tell you, growing up, um, and people from the podcast probably know that I'm multi-generational in this, so my parents taught Adlerian parenting classes, and they did their best, again, not perfect, but they did their best to, to implement this. And I, you know, my memory of my father and my siblings all agree, you know, my dad never raised his voice. He, the man was, I don't know how he did it, because we did not get along. We, 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 we did fight. It is part of how we came to Adlerian yeah. psychology, you know, because we, we needed, my parents needed help. Um, we were very good at conflict and, um, but I remember my dad could just stay so calm and cool. And, and in the, in the heat of these things, you could see the tension in his jaw. Like he would grind, you could grind, <laughs> he would grind his teeth and you knew that he was just like, Whoa, we are really upsetting that. And, and he would run his fingers through his hair. This was like his own self-soothing kind of like, Oh, I don't want to blow up at my kids. I don't want to blow up at my kids. But the brilliant thing is he would say, what are you willing to do? What a great question. In my childhood, when things were going off the rails and you're like, and he took my picture and he stepped on my thing and he said, whatever. And I was trying to like throw my brother under the bus and get him in trouble for all the wrong doings and why I was like so holier than thou that, you know, you know, victim me and big brother that and how, and my dad would never hear it. It was always, what are you willing to do? Me and, and at the, I mean, in the beginning it was sort of frustrating, but you know, of course we had our family meetings and we could work through some problem solving. But what he was trying to do is return responsibility to me to say in any interaction, to your point, you're only responsible for you. That's the only control you have. And so you can't give, you can't give away your power to the other person. If you want something to change in an interaction, the only person that, that the only power you truly have is to decide how to approach things differently. So I think he was ingraining that from the earliest, earliest age, you know, what a, what a gift he gave to you, you know, that he didn't give you the impression of, well, here's, here's how you manage conflict is that you make the most compelling case to dad. Right. And then, and then, and then he'll take his, then he'll take your side, you know, or, or, well, you look most pitiful. Uh, you compete for who is the most mistreated. You know, I mean, I mean, that sounds, maybe that sounds a little crazy that that would be a competition among siblings or, or couples, or, you know, I mean, we could fill in the blank. Who's the most mistreated. But the, the reality is if you live in a family where there's a lot of pity and a lot of people getting nosy and in each other's business, there is immense, immense power in being the person who is most mistreated. It's a not, it's, but this is what I mean about the brilliance of your book where people hear competition and they think it's just losing at monopoly. And what we're saying is no, this is what competition looks like. And it looks in all these quiet little insidious ways, including being the most mistreated. Like that's just such a great example of where someone yeah. wouldn't naturally recognize that as competition. But again, after they buy and read and enjoy your book, they can start, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, there's, I've got this quiet competition going on that I was unaware of. And to end the to end the competition is not to lose the battle. You know, it's right. It's, yeah. it, it's the beginning of that transformation into mutual respect. It's that um, uh, you know, living amongst living amongst each other, amongst the difference, with with without having to feel 
that everyone is your your competitor and that high level of threat that we can fall into. Yeah. Ceasing to compete only feels like a loss to a competitor. To a cooperator, it feels like, whew, like, like a relief. I mean, and again, I, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture of it. I mean, sometimes there's a cost, you know, it's like, it, it can be hard and it can be painful and it can be a whole host of things, but it is indisputably better. It really is better um, because, yeah, because yeah, then, well, you, you get to win friends instead of win, I don't know, care, codependent caregivers or a defeated, uh, a defeated something. Some, one thing I tell couples, as I said, the thing with competition is that if you're, if you all compete in your marriage and let's say, just for instance, that you win the competition, well, guess what you're married to now? You're married to a loser and nobody likes to be married to a loser in part because losers get mean and they, and they do, you know, and, and so you just to avoid and circumvent all of this blowback and all of the, you know, kind of secondary, like aftershocks of, of competition to a cooperative mindset to just bow out of competition. It doesn't feel like a loss if, I mean, it's hard, but it feels like a relief it feels like a bid for something better. And, and certainly there's a kind of internal dignity that you can have to say, you know, whatever anybody else is doing, I'm making a choice that, you know, might not be perfect, but I can be proud of it. I'm doing the best that I can with what I've got right now. And, uh, and, and that's not nothing, you know, I mean, that'll, that'll hold you for a while. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm often thinking of just general cooperative things that some families can do so that they can remember what it feels like to be cooperative, you know, like everybody washing the car, you know, with the bucket and the hose, and then you're laughing and someone gets sprayed. And like, even the little four-year-old knows how to like, you know, get a little J cloth and rub the bumper or whatever. And it's like, it's family fun. And, you know, everybody singing together. It's, you know, I used to buy um, cooperative board games where the, the, everyone has to put their minds together and you have to solve a common problem or, you know, when we would go bowling, we always did high family high score. We didn't do individual scores because the parents would always get the highest score. But it was like last time as a family, we bowled 562. Let's see if we can beat five. And it could be just the little baby, you know, rolling and, you know, getting almost a gutter ball, but getting a two pin. But it got us two <laughs> points over the last family high. And they're the, they're the hero of the, you know, there's lots of ways that we can move things from, you know, just, and again, to your point, it's not to say that I never, we didn't play competitive games in our family too, but the, the cooperative person can roll with the punches. It's not do or die. It's not their ego on the line. Uh, it, and, um, but we, but I tried to do as much of that when my kids were little, just so that they would know the felt experience of why it's more joyful when the boats are all going up with you. Yeah. It, you know, and as you say that, uh, it, we, sh- we maybe should take a minute just to observe that I, I genuinely don't have an idea of competition where it's like, okay, let's just squash it. Let's have no competition ever. It's, it's more something like this, that I would like competitive striving to be subordinated to a cooperative goal. So uh, I think I, maybe I've mentioned this to you before, but like I, I play some pickup basketball with some, some other folks uh, in my local area. Now that uh, like I'm vaccinated and things are getting a little bit more safe, I can go play basketball. And 
look like I'm, I I want to win the game. I mean, I really do. I want to win the game. Um, and in a sense, yeah, by virtue of me wanting to win the game, I want the other team to lose. But here's really what I want more than winning these little pickup games that we play. I want to keep playing with, with these folks. And the thing is, is that if I'm so bent on my uh, on competition then i'm willing to squash any cooperative desires that i have you know and subordinate my cooperative desires to my competitive desires well i'm really at some point i'm not going to be any fun to play with because i'll cheat you know i'll get a bad attitude i'll you know foul people you know every 10 seconds it's and eventually it's just gonna be like oh my gosh when calvin walks in the door we all kind of shake our heads because oh no he's here but, you know, the other way, yeah, I can still be competitive. I can still want to win. I can play hard. I'm not just like, you know, not even playing defense, just letting people do whatever they want to do on the court. It's not that. It's that I want to I compete in such a way that the group does well, that we have fun together, that we have good exercise, and that at the end of the day, we can all say, see you on Wednesday or whatever. And, and in, in good conscience, we're genuinely excited to see one another again. So yeah, no, we don't have to, uh, you know, clean out our board game drawer, you know, get rid of all the competitive, no, <laughs> but there's a way to play Monopoly or, you know, some other competitive board game in a way that is cooperative where you're just trying, everybody's just, you know, somebody lands on, on boardwalk and you own it and you've got a hotel on it. It's going to bankrupt them and they have to sell all their property for you to say, oh man, this this happens. I'm so, I'm so sorry, kiddo. And hey, uh, you know, now why don't you come help me? You know, why don't you? And then it's this thing of, yeah, okay, maybe you win the game. Maybe at the end, you know, you own all the property or whatever. But it's this, it's a way of doing it where you're not saying, oh, see, got you back for the time that I landed on Atlantic and I had to pay, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be that way where you just subordinate your competition to cooperative goals things can, there's plenty of competition that can be had and it's fun and it's productive, not just within families, but for society, you know, it can yeah. be productive. Uh, yeah. I'm just thinking about those parents who are so afraid of having their kids lose at a board game that they're, that they, <laughs> you know, not, not cheat, yeah. but like, they're, they're kind of like, Oh, well, we better make sure that Johnny wins or, you know, and I'm like, no, you won, you rolled the six, you know, they kids have to learn you win some, you lose some. That's, that's part of, that's part of how we step up. Cause again, it's it, once you decouple it from your, your human worth and, and you realize it's not a measurement of your soul. It's just a game. Yeah. That's yeah. the part that's so frank. So let's take it to the next level. And then, and then I want to give you an opportunity to make sure that we didn't uh, leave any holes because the book does yeah. go through siblings and child, parent, child and marriages, but you also take it intergenerationally into, into this bigger kind of global, this bigger global piece. So, you know, what, what does it, when it's outside of a monopoly game and it's Enron, uh, or, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, well, a president of the United States whose name will not be mentioned, but uh, whatever. I mean, yes. to take it to that yeah. level too. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I'm glad that you mentioned something about the intergenerational competition. We should just observe. I mean, we, we've got a really serious problem with this right now. Uh, I, certainly in the United States, I don't know what it's like in Canada exactly, but in the United States, there is just this intense disdain for people who do not belong to your you know, your own generation. And um, 
it it really is it's sad because there's a there's no need for it. I mean, there's really no prize at the end. You know, you just kind of at the end you're like, yeah, the other generations suck and mine doesn't. And this is, that's, this, is the, this is like the smacking up the millennials for all their avocado toast and you know yeah. whatever other thing becomes a mockery yeah. of the young. I mean, and the, and the reality is, right? I mean, generations do have assets and liabilities. I mean, every one you know, of them. Yeah, all of them. So it's not inaccurate to look at you know I don't know millennials or Gen Z or baby boomers and to say, oh well, here are some things that are wrong with them. Look, well, of course, there's things wrong with them. They function as a culture. And cultures have assets and liabilities. So, of course, they do. But the reality is, is, you know, if we take other people's liabilities as an opportunity to insult them and to put them down and to, sub, and to subjugate them to whatever, you know, our culture is going on, well, two things are going to happen. One, the liabilities of our generation are going to just go unimpeded, which we don't want. That's not, that's not good. But then the other thing is that, well, you stir up feelings of inferiority in this other generation and you know what they're going to do? Well, they're going to compensate. They're going to safeguard and they're going to compete with you. And that means that, well, maybe you're king of the mountain, but guess what? Now there's a bunch of other generations trying to tear you down and that's not good. And we waste an enormous amount of time and energy and heartache. And we miss out on so many things. I'm huge, huge opportunity costs to that. So that's worth mentioning. But then also, you know, I, I think one of the things that I did want to accomplish with this book is, yeah, let's talk about the family, but then let's talk about the stakes of what we do in our family. Uh, because if what we do is we train our family members to go out and compete and to strive vertically against other people, you know, trying to get superiority over other people. Well, yeah, they take that to the voting booth and they, and, and by the way, I'm not making like a a party statement there. I'm no, just no, I understand. Yeah. It, there's, there's plenty of this to go around, but like they take that to the voting booth and they take that into their business practices and they take that uh, out into the, you know, into the, in, into the store that they go to and they, and, um, and it's really unfortunate, you know, that there's this idea that everybody's kind of scraping and scribbling for this little place where, yeah, but everything should be like, I want it to be. Rather than saying, well, yeah, I do want things to be a certain way, and there's no getting around that. And of course, I want to see that. But I'm also going to keep on the brain that if my community suffers because I'm flourishing, at the end of the day, I'm not going to flourish. Like, I'll just be at the top of a trash heap, and that's not going to be any good. So this is why, you know, I, I, am, I, I do feel that this is a timely idea because we're facing these big global challenges, uh, we're facing things like uh, like climate change, and we're facing things like uh, increasing radicalization on all on all ends of the political spectrum, uh, increasing uh, unfavorable views of you know I mean here in the United States you talk to conservatives and they you know you get the idea that well you know everything in this country would just be great if the liberals weren't around. And you talk to liberals and it's the same thing. You know, it's just everything would be great if there weren't any conservatives. And it's just, it's so frustrating to watch. A, it creates this gridlock in our, in our government. But, but then beyond that, we become so blind to our own liabilities and we give, you know, a huge, I mean, we're talking in my country, we're talking hundreds of millions of people. You're giving them the idea. You're no good. 
You have nothing to contribute. Just get out of the way. And that is not a recipe for a flourishing community. And so I, I do feel that, yeah, okay, let's train people to do this in their families, but not just not just because of families, because our community, like we desperately need people who want to cooperate with other people. And that doesn't mean get wishy-washy about your principles. That doesn't mean don't speak up. That doesn't mean be, oh, geez, oh, shucks. That's not it at all. But to have some vision for everybody lending a hand and contributing. I was, um, I had the, the great pleasure of um, being invited over to Switzerland uh, with, um, uh, do you know, Eric Manziger? And uh, I just know him by name. And I hope I can James. get to know him. And, uh, but they were telling me about how Swiss law works. Talking about a cultural difference from North America, and they they have a very different form of democracy. The state heads rotate, so you don't have like a two party system where you have to tear <laughs> the other one down. Um, you know, you inherit the role of leader, but you know, so you move from finance minister to environment minister, and so you're always trying to set it up for success because you know you're going to like take it on. And, um, and it's not a representational system. Everyone votes. So, you know, their ballots are this big because everyone has to read through everything. (laughs) Um, but it's, but it's interesting that we just toss this word democracy around and yet, you know, democracy in Canada is very different than how it works in, in the States. And, and we've, you know, there's, we have some improvements to make to, to our political systems, but there are more cooperative. And I think, look at our First Nations people with, you know, we have, we have other models for how we can have leadership and governance of societies. And, um, and we need, and we need to look at that. And so, you know, again, your book is an important contribution for, 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 well, clinicians to, 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 for working with people. Um, but also, like I said, for, for families, whether that's in your couple relationship or as you're raising your kids to start to see it through this lens and to kind of push through the default definitions that when we say the word competition versus cooperation, hit the pause button, open up your mind to what that means as a functioning tenant. And uh, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that you have made it so accessible and relatable and ingestible <laughs> and fascinating. And, and I think this is, this is, this is the book that this is a good place for people to start with this concept and hopefully life altering. Yeah. I, I mean, that's certainly what I would hope. And uh, it's also my hope that, you know, I, I wrote the book certainly for clinicians. I mean, I'm a clinician. And so, and as I already mentioned in, in some sense, I wrote it for myself so that I could have it. But then I think beyond that, I think there's also, uh, I, I really wanted to make it accessible for everyday folks. Um, who maybe know nothing about psychology whatsoever, but so they could pick it up and get some of these important concepts. These and they're tough concepts, but they're also they're not so complicated that you need a master's degree or really even yeah. a high school diploma. You don't you don't need that for this book, and um, and that's that's the idea. So I hope that it will change people's lives, not just be. Uh, some something that hangs out on people's bookshelves. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 it won't. It won't. Um, so is there anything that um, you're, you were wishing that we made public in our chat here that we've missed? 
Well, maybe just a couple of things. I mean, uh, certainly if you could just include a link to uh, where you can get the book, you can get oh, it from absolutely. like, uh, we'll say a, a big unnamed online retailer. You can get it there or you can uh, <laughs> find it from another. Um, I, I will post a little link for that. And then um, uh, the only other thing I want to mention is that I really do. I genuinely enjoy dialoguing with people. And so if anybody ever wanted to reach out uh, about my book, maybe they had a question or a comment or something, uh, I would welcome uh, them reaching out. That would not be a, a bother to me at all. So uh, we could maybe also just even put my email address or some contact information. That'd be... I'll put all the, all the contact information to get, to get to you, to get to the book. I'll put that all in the show notes. And um, gosh, I, you know, congratulations on the launch of this book. And I hope you're busy rolling up your sleeves, writing or thinking of what you're going to, <laughs> to write as the next book. Have, have you thought about it? Oh, yes. I've, I've already got another one, although I'm taking a, a, an extended break to do, um, to do music for a while. I'm actually a, a songwriter. I write and produce my own music. And I put that on the back burner while I was finishing this book so I could focus and actually finish something. But um, is there but, a music link that needs to go in the show notes? Have you come on? Well, I mean, my daughter's a, my daughter's a big TikToker. She's she's <laughs> she's posting well, every day, self recording, cover versions, duets. No way! That's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that. she's quite yeah, she's quite musical. So you must come on. Where are you housing all this stuff? Okay, well, so I I have a couple links I, I can send you. I have okay. a, a like, like Bandcamp or something. We can do that. Yes, so. yes, good. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. Wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, but eventually, yes, I already have a, I have another really, I think a very fun idea. Uh, I'm going to, well, I don't want to give too much away, but I'll say this. It's, it's something like uh, Freudian and Jungian theory has really cemented itself. I mean, it's got like a good place in culture. And I think in large part, why that is, is because they've dialogued with cultural stories that we have, you know, so it's like you, you read Hamlet in high school and you know, you know what you talk about Freud and, <laughs> you know, and, and you read, you know, however many fairy tales and you end up, you know, talking about young. And, and so there's something there. And then I'm like, kind of like, well, where's Adler in here? And there's so much and all these, I mean, every, my wife will make fun of me every movie we watch. I'm like, Oh, that's so Adlerian. And, and so, so what I'm going to do, I think is just do some like fun Adlerian analysis of, very common stories or movies or books or something like that, where uh, we can get a little foothold in the cultural Oh my God. Goodwill hunting, uh, the King's speech. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'll start thinking. And yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. We are everywhere. We're just, we just have a, got to get our, <laughs> got to get our brand better. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you've been a big part of that. Thank you so much for your time. I, I'm you. so glad you made that contribution. That book's important. And I hope people go out and get a copy right away. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much, Allison. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? 
Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.